15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us on Space Nuts. It's so good to have your company. I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley, and I hope you're well. Uh, today's program's a little bit different. We will not be venturing into the universe through uh, new knowledge that's been published or uh, talking about space rocket launches that have happened in recent times or asteroids that have you know, hit us and killed us all. Don't think that's happened. Uh, what we're doing today is dedicating the show to the audience. Once in a while, we uh, we throw it over to you to throw at us some of the questions you want answered. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. Uh, questions about the ultimate fate of the universe. I think I know the answer to that one, and it's going to ha- and it's going to happen next week. Cepheid uh, uh, variables uh, is a question we've received. What is that, and what does it um, cost at the supermarket? Uh, can we use magnets to protect spacecraft heading to Mars? or anywhere for that matter, I suppose. Uh, Can asteroids that come close to Earth change our orbit? And uh, a a question we've received from Paul in um, Queensland, uh, and he's put it all in song. And I think it's a ukulele that he's backed up with. It's brilliant. We'll give you that. And the movement of stars in our galaxy, uh, all of those questions we will answer today. And if we can't answer them, we'll make it up. Uh, on Space Nuts. And jo- joining me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. We're pretty good at making things up, you and I, actually. It's uh, one of the things they teach you in uh, journalism school. If, uh, to yeah, make it, it up. Yeah, it's, it, the, 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 the segment is called Never Let the Truth Get in the Way of a Good Story. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's everybody's favourite um, thing when they, go, <laughs> when they go to school to learn about broadcasting and journalism, yes. Uh, yeah, we've got a whole bunch of questions to get through today, Fred, so we, we might as well get straight into it if you're, uh, if you're ready. <laughs> yep. Okie dokie. We'll go oh, first to, uh, to Mark. Hello, Space Nuts. Mark in Berman Gorvine here, the science fiction writer who asked you recently about the non-existent luminiferous ether. Today I'm wondering about the ultimate fate of the cosmos. Will it continue expanding infinitely until everything is very cold and very thinly spread, as imagined in classic science fiction tales, such as John W. Campbell Jr.'s Night and my own Tricky Dick Nixon and the Heat Death of the Universe, which is available on Amazon? Or is there any chance that instead of freezing to death, we're all going to crunch up in a super hot, collision as everything snaps back like a universal rubber band and collapses into a singularity and maybe explodes again in in another big bang ad infinitum. It's my impression that uh, the cold soup scenario um, is now thought to be more likely, but what is the real evidence and might opinions change again? Thanks for taking my question. A great pleasure, Mark. Lovely to hear from you again. And yes, it's it's uh, one of the uh, most uh, popular questions that uh, get asks gets asked of astronomers. Fred, uh, what, what's going to happen to us all? Um, you know, is the end nigh? Well, probably not, but uh, yeah, it's going to happen eventually. But how will it end? Will it just become a big frozen ball of nothing, or will it? Um, you know, the, will the gnab? Gib happen, the reverse Big Bang, and just crush in on ourselves in a, a flaming end. It's um, it, it's 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 a question that uh, surfaces quite often. Yeah, and actually, Mark um, uh, has already given us the answer in the title of uh, one of his novels, which included the term "the heat death of the universe." And uh, it, it's interesting that that um, that was a term that was popular when I was a youngster. Um, Kind of before I became an astronomer, people talked about the heat death of the universe. That was the idea late eighteen hundreds, wasn't it, Fred? <laughs> it was. It wasn't that long after that. No, uh, 
the late eighteen hundreds always seemed quite recent to me when I was growing up. Believe it or not, <laughs> now, that's more to do with where I grew up, I think, which had its feet firmly planted in the late eighteen hundreds, including the school I went to. Anyway, um, all of that's uh, uh, you know irrelevant, but it, it's uh, it, it, essentially the heat death of the universe is the idea that the universe just cools down and basically fizzles out. Mm. Uh, so for a period during the 70s and 80s, uh, there was a much different idea, a more popular idea, that um, maybe the universe, which was known already by then, of course, to be expanding, uh, that was discovered in 1929, um, that the universe might slow down in its expansion because of the gravity of everything within it and eventually stop expanding and start collapsing on itself to produce... Uh, what you and I have discussed before, the um, uh, the big crunch, uh, which was also christened by my Brian Brian Schmidt, the Gnab Gib, uh, which is the Big Bang backwards. Uh, <laughs> fa- fantastic stuff. I love to get that in anything I can when when I talk about it. The Gnab Gib. Um, so the, the you know the idea was that yes, maybe it would collapse back to another singularity, which would sort of bounce maybe the the expression the big bounce was sometimes used so that you get another expansion from the this rebound of the of the universe uh it, what put the nail into the coffin of that idea the final nail uh was once again Brian Schmidt the professor of astronomy as he then was at the Australian National University now uh now in fact it's uh, vice chancellor um so the uh, the discovery made by Brian's group and another group in the in the USA, uh, led by Saul Permuta, those two groups independently demonstrated that the universe is ex- is expanding at an ever increasing rate, so it's accelerating, uh, and we think that's because of dark energy, which we don't understand. And so, what we've got now is a scenario where, to the best of our understanding, uh, the universe will simply continue expanding. Uh, at an ever-increasing rate, unless something changes. But what that might be, we have no idea. Um, that, you maybe know, the, maybe uh, bumping into another universe. Well, that, yeah, that, that's the sort of thing. But at the moment, that's you know that's so far beyond our knowledge horizons that um, we really can't do anything about it, mm. or, or even build it into our ideas. So at the moment, the idea is yes, that the universe will continue to expand. Uh, at an ever increasing rate, and so um, the fate of the universe is not pretty. <laughs> um, uh, I might actually um, make it easy on myself by reading uh, from the new book, uh, Space Warp, because I've got a little section on the fate of the universe, uh, uh, which uh, says. If the accelerating expansion continues as it's going now, there will come a time billions to trillions of years down the track when distant galaxies start disappearing. That's because the light leaving them will never reach us since the space between them and us is expanding too fast. Astronomers in the far distant future will only be able to study our Milky Way galaxy and its fellow members in the local group. To them, that will be the whole universe. And to make matters worse, the universe's hydrogen supply will have been exhausted so no new stars will be formed, while the existing ones will eventually die and turn into black dwarfs or um, black holes. But even that isn't the end of this dark and gloomy story. This is to cheer up the youngsters and yes, read it. Yes, and... Chil- this is a children's book, <laughs> yes, isn't it? it is. Uh, this, yeah, there's better news after the end of this section. Uh, eventually, space will be expanding so rapidly that galaxies, stars, and planets won't be able to resist its power to tear things apart. It will; they will be spaghettified as if they were falling into a gigantic black hole. And the final insult, as it is an event usually called the Big Rip, in which atoms, subatomic particles, and perhaps even space-time itself will disintegrate. As I said, it's not pretty and basically has all the hallmarks of a gigantic temper tantrum, not nice behaviour for a polite universe. Fortunately, it is so many billions or trillions of years in the future that it really doesn't matter. (laughs) And who knows where humanity will be then if it exists at all. If it exists at all, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's not going to be a pretty end, Mark, I'm, I'm afraid to say. Um, uh, as far and, as we know. <laughs> as far as we know. Um, but I, I suppose the thing that is 
difficult to get my head around and most people's heads around is um, how could the universe possibly continue to expand at an accelerating rate? It just doesn't seem logical. It's uh, Yes, and dark energy isn't logical, which is why we, we really don't understand it. So the idea of dark energy is that uh, it is a, it's a product of space itself. So the more space you've got, the more dark energy you've got, and that pushes it you know, apart even faster. Mm. Uh, so it is a, it's a, like what you might call a, a positive feedback. It just kind of keeps on going and, and eventually produces effectively an exponential expansion. It's like a giant fusion reactor. It just keeps feeding itself. Uh, yes, except there's no fuel and no, no need to convert anything into anything else. It just comes from space. Yeah, it's yeah, it's so strange. Work it's that so one strange. out. <laughs> I, I can't. I'm, you know, you can't figure it out. What hope have I got, Fred? So, so it, it's possible that we've, you know, our idea of what dark energy is like is wrong, and that it's not a property of space itself. That it's some other fundamental force, and one that people talk about is called quintessence, mm. uh, uh, a fifth fundamental force. If that's the case, then it might behave in a different way. You know, it may get quenched when the universe gets to a certain size or who knows what, what could happen. Yeah. But based on what we know so far, the end I've described is what might well happen. And, and somewhere along the line in that process, it's going to get very cold and dark, is it not? Yeah, because there's nothing left. You know, stars eventually die. They all die out. There's no hydrogen left to form new stars. So it, it becomes cold and dark. And so it's just going to be a whole bunch of dead rocks floating around. More or less, that's yeah. right, getting further and further apart. It's How boring, exciting. Really. <laughs> yeah. The big rip's a lot more exciting. It is. It you is, know, yeah. everybody would be having their big rip part. Sorry, the, the, <laughs> big, the big, um, big crunch, I beg your pardon. The, the big, big crunch. crunch will be a lot more exciting, mm. yeah. But at least we all get to go to the restaurant at the end of the universe. In the universe, exactly. That's exactly. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, for those who are going, what on earth is he talking about? In fact, people say that to me every week. <laughs> yes, whether mm. you're talking about that or not. Indeed. All right, mm. so there, there, there you are, Mark. You asked, and you probably don't like the answer, but <clears throat> nothing much we can do about it at this point in time. Uh, oh, and you did say um, that the space-time might unravel, which means time would end. Wouldn't it? Um, it, it, it? Well, probably, yeah. It probably falls to pieces. Uh, so as time gets fragmented into little chunks, now, how do you deal with that? I have no idea. You have to wear fifty million <laughs> watches, I suppose. I don't. Know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No idea. No idea. Okay, thanks, Mark, for the question. Now let's move on to our next uh, uh, inquisitor, and this is Paul from Pennsylvania. Hello, Fred and Andrew. This is Paul from Pennsylvania. I have a question about Cepheid variables. I know Levitt discovered that they were variable, and Hubble used them to discover the distances to galaxies. I was just wondering exactly how that worked. Oh, that's it. Never seemed to be able to get a straight answer on that. Right. Thank you. Bye. Cepheid variables. Yes, they 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 are the you know they're fundamental in our understanding of uh, the distances to galaxies, particularly. So, um, and it goes, it, it goes right back to Hubble's time, um, exactly as um, exactly as Paul says. Uh, One of so, your old classmates, wasn't? <laughs> I wish <laughs> <laughs> it was a bright spark that lad. Very. Um, but it was actually a woman who discovered the the, the fundamental issue here back in 1908, Henrietta. Swan Levitt, uh, who um, uh, Paul mentioned, um, she she looked at um, many many thousands of stars in the Magellanic Clouds. These two, um, as we now know them to be, nearby dwarf galaxies. Um, and the thing about studying variable stars uh, is, if you if they're all in one place as these were. Uh, in the Magellanic Clouds, then you you know um, that they're all effectively at the same distance, which we now know is, um, gosh, I've forgotten these numbers, 165,000 light years for the large Magellanic Cloud. So they're all the same distance away. And so any changes in their brightness is intrinsic. It's not caused by uh, it coming backwards or forwards or anything like that. They're all sitting in this Magellanic Cloud and they're all varying uh, with 
it, with different brightnesses. That's what a variable star is. It's one whose whose light output varies over time. Mm. So she could watch these things and observe, make the observations. And the discovery that she made was that Cepheid variables, first of all, are, are periodic. Their variation in light actually, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, it, it, it's regular, um, but they don't all have the same period. So. Uh, their periods range typically up to, you know, 60 days or something like that. Somewhere between 10 and 60 days would be a typical time for uh, the, the, the period of a Cepheid variable star. But what she discovered was that the ones that vary over longer timescales are actually brighter. And they're brighter intrinsically because... They're all at the same distance. It's not a distance effect that she's confusing it with. Uh, the, the, the longer period Cepheids are brighter. And Henrietta Levitt was able to essentially plot a diagram that shows the relationship between the period of variability, how it goes up and down, how long it takes to, to go through one cycle, and the brightness, and it's called the period luminosity diagram. It's actually the the fundamental thing. So what it means, Andrew, is if you find a Cepheid variable mm. in the sky, all you've got to do is to measure its period, how long it takes to go through one cycle. You then look up Henrietta Leavitt's diagram or its modern equivalent, and that tells you how intrinsically bright it is. And if you know its apparent brightness, as we observe from Earth, then that gives you its distance very accurately. Uh, and that's how it works. So it was when Hubble detected Cepheid variables in the Andromeda galaxy, which he would have called the Andromeda Nebula because he didn't know it was a galaxy, um, he was able to plot the distance uh, very, exactly, very exactly. In fact, they got it wrong because there was an error in the calibration of the Cepheid variables, but that was fixed later. Mm. So that is the, the, the step, and that's what allows you to start measuring the distance to galaxies. It's that fundamental uh, you know, step in the what we call the, the distance ladder. And actually, it is the reason why the Hubble telescope was built and launched and used was to make very accurate measurements of Cepheid variable stars in other galaxies to work out how far, what the calibration is for uh, distant galaxies. The only thing I can think of in that regard is with everything constantly moving, wouldn't the wouldn't there be constant variation in the calculations and the and the results? Or am I thinking out? Well, things are moving, but um, you know, only on the, the the distances through which they move are tiny compared with the distance away that these stars are. Right. So it doesn't actually make any difference to the brightness. You know, if they were whizzing away and their distance was changing by a factor of two or five or ten or whatever over a short time, yes, that would make a difference. But um, but no, um, it's um, it was doing them in the Magellanic Clouds that was the clincher because you know that they're all 165,000 light years away. Yes, the clouds have got, or for the large cloud, the clouds have got their own thickness, but it's tiny compared with the distance yeah. to it. So hmm. very, very clever stuff. Yeah, fascinating. Um, way beyond my pay grade, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably beyond uh, Henrietta's as well. So cause they, they, she started off as uh, one of these computers, one of these people who just measured, uh, you know, measured the, um, the, 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 the brightness and positions of stars. Mm. Uh, but she became a pivotal figure in uh, 20th century astronomy. Yeah, quite astute by the sound of it. Mm. Absolutely. All right. Uh, thank you for the question, Paul. Uh, great to hear from you and nice to nice to get something completely different. We've never really discussed that before, so um, good for you. Uh, you're listening to, and if you're a YouTuber watching, I don't know why you'd want to see our faces, uh, this Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a little bit of a break so I can tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. Now, as a Space Nuts listener, uh, there is a special opportunity only for you to get NordVPN, the best VPN service available in the world at the moment. Uh, they are offering 73% off a two-year plan, if you crunch the numbers. Basically, they're offering two years 
plus four months free if you sign up to the NordVPN service. And it is very worthwhile because not only do you get a massive discount for being a a Space Nuts listener, you get one of the the best in the business looking after your security. Uh, They will shield your browsing from uh, cyber criminals and cyber surveillance. Uh, All the data you send and receive online travels through an encrypted tunnel. So um, there's no way anybody can get their hands on your personal information. And let's face it, with all the scams and low lives out there uh, trying to get hold of your money through your online activity, it makes sense to provide some layer of security. Well, this is the best layer of security you're going to get. It works on all kinds of platforms, Windows, MacBook, Linux, Android, uh, iOS, uh, it works on all of them and it works seamlessly. Uh, you can secure up to six devices on a single account and <laughs> that even covers your smart TV, which, you know, that's pretty impressive. And uh, you've got access to the global internet. So what you can do is change your IP address and enjoy the internet experience without borders. It's um, it's a pretty simple process. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons to uh, choose NordVPN, 24-hour, seven-day-a-week um, uh, service uh, and assistance. Um, online freedom is what they offer, uh, offer you, reliable encryption, quick connection. In fact, sometimes your speed through their VPN service is faster than your existing service, which is quite amazing. And I know it happens because I've I've seen it myself with uh, with uh, when I've connected NordVPN through uh, my internet service provider, and it is the fastest VPN on the planet. Uh, over 5,200 servers uh, worldwide. So you should be able to log in anywhere, anytime to access whatever it is you need, or just have it running in the background uh, during your day-to-day business, knowing that you're fully secure. So if you'd like to take advantage of the service as a Space Nuts listener, there's a special URL, nordvpn.com slash space nuts. That's nordvpn.com slash space nuts. Sign up today. You'll get a two-year plan and an extra four months for free. That's uh, that's a pretty good deal. NordVPN.com slash Space Nuts. Now back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems. And King with a go. Space Nuts. Now, have you visited our uh, website? It's, uh, it's very worthwhile because we spent next to nothing on it and it doesn't really do much. No, I'm not kidding. Well, I am kidding. Uh, SpaceNutsPodcast.com. Uh, but we also have an alternative URL, spacenuts.io. I don't know why we did that. I mean, you know, we confuse people enough. Now we're giving them multiple URLs. But it, it's okay. Um, there's plenty to do there. Of course, we've got our shop. You can visit the shop. Uh, you can uh, get um, you know quite regular and up-to-date astronomical information through Astronomy Daily. Uh, you can leave a review. Uh, you can uh, click on our supporter link and find out how to support Space Nuts. Uh, there are all sorts of things to see and do. And, uh, you know, we're getting more and more uh, material on there every day. Spacenutspodcast.com if you want to uh, check it out. Now, Fred, uh, we better keep going because we've got a, another uh, bunch of questions to, uh, to get through. And this one comes from Abe. Hey, guys. This is Abe from Boise, Idaho. I love your show. And I had an idea for the Mars trip. If why can't we make bring the magneto sphere that protects us on Earth? Can we create something like that for the spacecraft using magnets instead of heavy lead shielding or water to protect from the cosmic rays? Thanks. I love your show. I listen to you at work all the time. You guys are awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Abe. So great to hear from you and hope all is well in Boise, Idaho. Uh, I, yeah, we, we've talked before about um, long-haul travel in space and going to Mars is going to be a big challenge. Uh, the exposure to cosmic radiation being one of the many pitfalls of, uh, of, of travelling and protecting astronauts from that kind of exposure yeah, he mentioned lead. Uh, we've talked about water in the past, but these things are very heavy and difficult to um, to you know put around a spacecraft. I imagine so. Um, magnetos or magnets is that a possibility? It is. Uh, uh, it is a possibility, and in fact, um, Abe is right on the money with his idea because research has been going on 
uh, on this sort of thing, actually since the 1960s. Um, but um, it's recently taken a big step forward. Uh, so back in uh, the 1960s, uh, the, the the idea of magnetic protection from radiation for space travellers, say, on their way to Mars, um, was thrown out because the the su- suggestion was at that time that you'd need to shield a volume of space greater than a hundred kilometres across. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd you'd need to generate a huge magnetic magnetic field. Um, that stretches out into space 100 kilometres and needs, you know, enormous electrical power to maintain it. So that Mm. was the old idea, and that's why it was thrown away. But there's recent research, which actually come from the UK. Um, It's led by somebody called Ruth Bamford, who's at the Rutherford Laboratory, um, which is uh, not far from... Oxford, it's at Abingdon, if I remember rightly. Uh, it used to be one of the sister organisations to the Royal Greenwich Observatory, and I worked there a uh, hundred years ago. Uh, <laughs> the Rutherford Laboratory is uh, a high-energy physics laboratory. But um, uh, Ruth Bamford uh, of this laboratory has recalculated this um, because, um, and, and I'm, I'm quoting here from a Physics World article, uh, according to Bamford, these previous calculations are inaccurate because they assume that the solar wind plasma behaves like a normal fluid. Decades of research on nuclear fusion have instead shown that plasmas are subject to all sorts of turbulent behaviour not seen in lo- normal fluids, and that furthermore, this turbulence can occur on roughly human scales. Mm. Uh, so the researchers believe it's possible to exploit this knowledge of turbulence to create a much smaller protective bubble and have confirmed this belief first through computer simulations and then in a laboratory experiment. Uh, the latter involved injecting a supersonic plasma into a 1.5-metre-long vacuum vessel lined with magnetic coils with a target magnet placed at the far end. Uh, and it goes on. This is uh, courtesy of, uh, of Physics World. Um, so... The, the, the bottom line is that there is active work going on on exactly this topic at the moment. Um, and uh, actually, there's a, there was a nice quote. I don't know whether I can find it from, from Ruth, Ruth Bamford, uh, which, was, um, uh, which struck me. Uh, she made a comment that I thought, oh, yeah, here we are. Um, <laughs> getting in a tin can with a rocket on your back and flying to Mars is never going to be a safe thing to do. <laughs> so that's uh, that's Ruth's comment, and I think that's perfectly true. But um, yeah. what's coming out of this work is the kind of power levels that might be needed to protect uh, the spacecraft, and it's actually quite manageable. They're suggesting somewhere between a 1,000 watts or thereabouts uh, and 5 kilowatts. Um, now, that's, you know... That's basically an, a, a, a good-sized electric heater in your living room. Um, mm. The um, just to, to 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 put a yardstick on that, um, the solar panels or the solar arrays from the International Space Station uh, they generate something like 120 kilowatts. So you know, if you had that sort of capability, your your magnetic protection would be would be quite feasible. It would be a small drain yeah. on that sort of power supply. So a uh, really interesting question, and interesting work that is ongoing as we speak. There you go, Abe. You're right on the money. Right yeah. on the money. So uh, yeah, it's obviously, uh, and it sounds like it'd be very cost effective too. Uh, it might well be. Yeah, it it, it may yeah. turn out to be something pretty impressive. Mm, good stuff. Okay, thanks, Abe. Lovely to hear from you. And we'll move now to Brazil. Hey, hello, Space Nut. This is Claudio. I'm from Brazil. I have a question about black holes. Oh, no, no, just kidding, actually. <laughs> kind of a black hole humor. No, my, my question is actually about uh, some episodes ago, you were talking about the solar expansion and, uh, well, the fact that in a few million years, uh, the sun will be bigger and bigger and bigger, and we will not be that comfortable if we stay where we are now. So probably we would have to change the whole planet a little bit further. So I remembered uh, some time ago, I heard this uh, idea 
or I don't remember exactly where it was, but uh, well, we would be capable eventually of changing asteroids' orbits in a way that they could pass on the right side of Earth and then uh, using the gravity of these asteroids, we could maybe, uh, on, using little steps, uh, change Earth's orbit so that we could uh, go further and further and further from, from the Sun. Of course, this would take millions of years and probably thousands of asteroids, but it's kind of a, of a nice idea. Maybe well, we have time, probably, like the Sun's not going to uh, expand that fast. So I would like to, to know, what, uh, what do you think about this idea? Do you think it's uh, maybe possible in a far, far future to, to do these kinds of things? Thank you, and uh, keep the great great work. Thank you, Claudio. Well, great to hear from you too. Um, it's good to have an audience in Brazil. Uh, now, using asteroids to change the orbit of the Earth to keep us moving away from the expanding sun, feasible? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Claudio, great question and a great idea too. Um, but... The problem is the raw material that you're equipped with is totally inadequate to do anything to the orbit of the Earth. Um, if you added up all the asteroids in the main asteroid belt, uh, which is by far the biggest congregation of asteroids in the solar system, add them, add, add their masses all together, what you get is 4% of the mass of the moon, not even 4% of the mass of the Earth. Now, the moon's oh. only only an 80th of the mass of the Earth, mm. and, and you're talking of four, about 44% of that. Um, and actually, a, a third of that total mass is Ceres, the biggest asteroid, the dwarf planet Ceres. So even if you could grab Ceres and steer it around uh, in the right kind of orbit, it would have effectively zero effect on the Earth. The Earth is much more massive uh, than, uh, you know, the whole of the asteroid belt put together. Uh, so, um, and, it, and it's good to have those comparisons. You know, we tend to think, we, we asteroids are um, quite high on our, on our agenda. We're very conscious of them and we think about them a lot. Um, but we don't often think about their mass in terms of the mass of the planets, but they're basically much, much, much less. So um, it's not uh, something that could be done. Um, it's hard to know with a, an object the size of the Earth, even with the most mega scale engineering that you can imagine, it's hard to know how you would shift its orbit artificially. Mm. Uh, objects as massive as a planet, are <laughs> they don't move that easily. There, there was a really bad... Uh, I think it was Japanese or Korean sci-fi that I watched recently uh, yeah. where Earth needed to be moved because something dreadful was going to happen to our solar system and they had to move us out past Jupiter or something. Uh, so they just strapped like tens of thousands of rockets to the Earth. Good, <laughs> good. Yeah, that yeah. wouldn't work either. Um, I, did rem I, I did read a sci-fi novel some years ago called Nemesis, I think it was, uh, I don't know who wrote it. Might have been Robert can, A. Highland or something. But, well, um, I, if it's the one I'm thinking of, I can tell you it's Bill Napier, who's a guy Bill I used Napier. to work with in, okay. uh, in Edinburgh. Bill Napier. In fact, it's on these bookshelves, isn't it? Oh, it's okay. Well, maybe that's the one, but uh, I yeah. think the basis of it was that Earth was going to be hit by an asteroid and yeah, they worked out that they could make it miss by using gravity through, a, I think, a spacecraft of some kind to just yeah. slowly divert it over time. That's right. So your yeah. your concept does have um, does have merit, Claudio, but not on not on a planet like scale. I think no, that's would be right. fair to say. Yeah, that's, all right. That's correct. Yeah. Nice to hear from you. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, if you'd like to become a patron and support the Space Nuts podcast financially, uh, we would be thrilled. It's totally up to you, of course. I haven't really talked about it much lately, but it's an opportunity for you to uh, put a few dollars in into the tin can that keeps Space Nuts um, uh, humming along. And uh, plans start at $4.50 a month. And you can do that through patreon.com or you can do it through Supercast or you can do it through uh, any number of uh, options, which you'll find on our website, spacenutspodcast.com. Uh, there endeth the spruik. Now, <laughs> uh, Fred, let's move on to our, uh, our next question. This one comes from uh, Richard. Hello, Andrew and Fred. Um, 
This is Richard from South Salem, New York, just north of New York City. Love your broadcast. And I have a question that's always troubled me or uh, perplexed me is the actual movement of stars in our galaxy. Uh, I know even though we have a spiral galaxy, all the stars don't move as if it's a big swirl to the Blue Danube. Um, but stars are going in all different directions. Uh, there are streams of stars from old uh, gobbled up galaxies. There are groups of stars that uh, formed at one time and are moving in the same direction like the Ursa Major Movement Group. Uh, is there a, a clear way of understanding? Yet at the same time, I understand there really is an orbiting around the uh, galaxy that takes our sun about 200 million years to make a full uh, route. So uh, is there rhyme and reason to the movement of stars in the galaxy, or are they all moving in different uh, directions, buzzing around this way and that? Thanks a lot. Look forward to your answer. Mm, okay. Uh, and thank you for uh, getting in touch with us, Richard Hope, all as well in your little part of the world. Actually, it's a big part of the world. But um, yeah, uh, movement of stars. I, I think uh, God was playing um, snooker and went bang. That's, that's what I think <laughs> yeah, happened. That, almost that sort of thing. Um, it's a great question and, and sort of goes to the roots of uh, how we understand uh, the motion of stars in our galaxy. Uh, and in fact, uh, really goes back it historically it goes back to uh the time not long after hubble worked out that spiral galaxies were very distant objects uh and that we probably lived in one of those as well um because at that time that was not known it was you know assumed that we we lived in a disk of stars we knew it, we weren't at the center of the disk harlow shapley proved that in 1919 but um the motion of the stars in the galaxy, that was actually kicked off by Dutch astronomers. Uh, Jan Oort was the best known one, well known today for the Oort cloud, where the, mm. uh, where the, galaxy, where the, we, the, the comets come from, the reservoir of comets. But Oort uh, and one of his colleagues, I can't remember who it was, I'm ashamed to say that, but never mind. Um, I did write about his, it. His, in, his name is clearly Nort. Yeah, or to not. Actually, I think it was, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, it was somebody like Hertzsprung, but it wasn't him. Anyway, this never mind, they, never mind. This is what this is why they called, uh, this is why they called you Fred. So you remember. <laughs> remember the damn name. Yeah. <laughs> and what's it short for again? Oh, I can't remember. Um <laughs> So, yeah, anyway, Jan Oort, and the reason why his name is the one that comes to mind is because what, what he did was he looked at the motion of stars in the vicinity of the sun. And um, if, you, if you think about the fact that these stars are all swirling around the centre of the galaxy, um, mm. he actually teased out from the individual motions of the stars uh, what the underlying flow was. So. Um, you know, Richard's right in the sense that the stars do have their own individual motions, but it's part of a bulk motion as well. So they've got what we call proper motions, which is their motions are seen from, from Earth, but they also have real space motions, which you can relate to the kind of average motion of all the stars at our distance from the centre of the galaxy. And this was what Oort did. And it's why we have what are called the Oort constants, Oort constants A and B, which actually determine the motion of stars are in, this, in the neighbourhood of the sun and relate it to the ro rotation of the galaxy. Anyway, the bottom line is that you can measure all the, the, you know, the motion, the individual motions of all the stars and take a kind of average and that is called the local standard of rest. It's an important concept. The local standard of rest is um, the, it, 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 all the, if you measure all the um, neighboring stars with regard to the local standard of rest, 
then what you're seeing is their individual motions because the local standard of rest itself is the motion of all of them around the galaxy. I'm putting this very badly. Uh, but the local standard of rest isn't a standard of rest at all. It's, it's the, uh, you know, the right velocity around the centre of our galaxy, four stars at our distance. That's basically what it means. And so um, just to cut to the quick, uh, or cut to the chase, I beg your pardon, uh, wrong metaphor there, cut to the chase <laughs> uh, in, in Richard's um, uh, answer. Yes, he's, he's right, or Richard's question, he's right, that, that, that stars have their own individual motions. But on top of that, or underneath that, perhaps, they're being carried along by the rotation of our galaxy. So that it's like, um, I don't know, I mean, one one way of putting it is to imagine it being a river flow uh, with lots of people in rowboats rowing around on the river flow. They've all got their individual motions, but they're being carried along by the river. It's exactly the same. Yeah, or a lotto machine where you've got balls inside a big ball and you spin the big ball and the little balls all do their own thing. Not quite because they're being dictated by the rotation of the external ball. Anyway. Um... <laughs> What's a lotto machine again? I don't know. I tried. Uh, no, it's good. Um, all right. Yeah, I think stick to the river. <laughs> yeah, the river is a good concept. I think we've used the river concept before. We, we have, yeah, in, on a larger scale because it's the way we envisage the way galaxies move. Galaxies also have mm. their own motion as they're car- carried along by the Hubble flow, the expansion of the universe. So all right. A- Thanks for your question, Richard. Uh, and finally, uh, our last um, question for this week's episode. Uh, this is a question that comes from Paul, north of the border, and I'm assuming that means he's in Queensland, which could explain a lot about this. Um, <laughs> Paul has uh, sent us a question. We've received a, in, in a format never, ever before done on Space Nuts, and I won't spoil it by telling you what he's done i'll just hit the button and yeah let it go here we are g'day andy g'day Freddy. hope this finds you going steady no not like those ancient grecians ah screw it's good to hear your audience is increasing <clears throat> Now I got a little query, and I hope it's not too dreary. It involves event horizons, and a spaceship and its chances of surviving. I know we can use a planet's gravity to boost our rockets and throw them outside its grip and speed up on a parabolic trip. Could you use a black hole's massive gravity to up a ship's velocity and hurl it closer to the speed of light? I know it's a kind of a long shot and even if you Hit the sweet spot, would go and pass one, make you faster. Or would you just end up like your mama's pasta? <laughs> Dearest Freddie, darling Andy, love your show, it's really handy. So from up north of your border, this is Paul who's suffering from Space Nuts Disorder. <laughs> Oh, man, that is brilliant. That is brilliant. Wow. Uh, Never, ever had a question sent to us in that format ever before. Um, Yeah, but uh, thank you, Paul. Uh, That was was so good. Now, Fred, you know that music. Uh, I thought it was something else. Well, actually, I think it's (laughs) what I understood it to be was adapted from something much more um, classical. Uh, that's right. Yeah, the tune is from, uh, it's actually the Dance of the Hours or Danza delle Ore in Italian, uh, which is a, a, a ballet in Act Three of La Gioconda, the opera by Amilcare Poncielli, composed in 1876. Uh, so, and it's something I've known Fred, since Fred, I was. Fred was there. I, well, I'd known it since I was a kid because among the old 78 RPM records we had at home, that was one of them. Uh, And in fact, I I 
many years ago, I, I transcribed them all to digital format and I played it last night just to remind me the quality is rubbish, uh, yeah. sound quality, but uh, the, the tune is there. Uh, and of mm. course, it was heavily modified for um, uh, for Camp Granada, wasn't it? Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Hello, mother, hello, father. That's the one. Um, yeah. Now, something that uh, I should confess, Andrew, uh, which only a few people know, is that whenever I listen to music, particularly a song, I never listen to the lyrics. It's always the underlying music. And so um, if I hear a rock song that I like, it's not the words because I don't hear the words. I just hear the music. Uh, and interesting. You know, uh, folk or whatever it is, it's always the music. And so um, I was so captivated by the music there that I didn't really properly hear Paul's question. <laughs> but I think well, it was I, about I think, footballs. <laughs> I, I think I can nutshell it. He was, uh, he was asking, you know, he was saying, like, we can get gravity assist uh, through, um, yeah. you know, slingshotting around planets. Could we do it uh, by using a gravity assist uh, on a black hole or would we get spaghettified? Uh, I I thought that was it. Yes, I I got the impression it was. So um, the the way to avoid being spaghettified by a black hole is to go past it uh, sufficiently. To never never go to Queensland. Never never go near it. That's right. I do, do, by the way, there was a nice allusion. I did listen to the words at the end because I thought I'd better listen to this. Um, Very nice, very nice lyrics, um, Mm. uh, Paul. Uh, And I like the allusion to his mother's pasta, which, of course, is spaghetti. (laughs) Uh, Very good, yeah. Being spaghettified. So um, uh, if you're going past it fast enough, then you won't get pastified. <laughs> you won't get turned right. into spaghetti because you, you, you basically just whiz by it. And that's what happens to the star S2, which is the closest star to the supermassive black hole in the centre of our galaxy. And it's certainly its orbit is certainly being influenced by uh, the black hole. But um, whether you could use that for a gravity assist uh, is a question that I suspect has a negative answer. Because mm. as I understand it, and I, I should really check this, but I think it's it's not so much the the mass of a planet that lets you do a, a you know a gravitational slingshot by flying by it. It's the way that mass is distributed. Uh, so you've got something you get close enough to it that you're feeling a mass from. You know, you're feeling the gravitational attraction not just of the planet as a whole, but of different parts of it, and they are what affect your ability to transfer momentum from the planet to the spacecraft. Now, with a black hole, by definition, its mass is all concentrated in a single point. So, I suspect that might preclude uh, the idea of using it as a gravitational slingshot, but it's something I'd like to try and check with my colleagues. Okay. okay. Um, and uh, you can bet your life I'm going to listen to that again because it's such a mm. brilliant – and the lyrics oh, are very, very nicely done. <laughs> I, I'm very sorry to say that uh, if, if we were to, you know, try to slingshot round a black hole with Paul, all would be lost, but I think the uke- ukulele would survive. <laughs> Well, it might it might go up in pitch uh, because you've got <laughs> the gra- gravitational time dilation. Yes. Um, I don't want to steal Paul's thunder here, uh, mm-hmm. Andrew, but I, I might just give a quick shout out to another musical uh, genius uh, who was in touch with us recently, and we never got back to him. And uh, I hope we we can at some point. And that's Jesse James Allen who wrote essentially a symphonic work uh, That's right. celebrating the Cassini mission, which is something yeah. very close to my heart. Uh, and so um, it was the Cassini tribute. In fact, it's on www.cassinitribute.com. Um, mm. Brilliant stuff. Uh, Jesse it is James, brilliant. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, what we've just heard from Paul is no less brilliant in its own way, uh, even mm. though, you know, um, that ukulele there, pretty Pretty great stuff. Yeah, Maybe it doesn't awesome. com- compare with a with a synthesizer reflecting an entire symphony orchestra. Never mind. It's all good yeah. stuff. It's all music. That's my view. It's fantastic. I got, I got one. I got one more surprise. Uh, seeing you mentioned Cassini, Fred. Okay. Yeah. Oh no! <laughs> oh, no! 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 <laughs> 
I'll save you from that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, that was somebody with a voice not very different from the one you're listening to now. Um, so I too was inspired by Cassini. And somebody, um, somebody wrote uh, that um, it's from La Donna Immobile. That's the, it's the tune, which is another operatic piece. And yep. the Planetary Society commissioned somebody to write some words, but they only wrote one verse. Uh, and that was oh. the start of it there. And so I wrote another three, another two, I think. And I did perform it around the time quite a lot in the, you know, for talks and things like that. And In fact, it was in South Australia that that recording was made. Um, so that was my one contribution, which is uh, somewhat less musically talented than Paul's ukulele. And a I, lot have been, though, <laughs> I have been, though, waiting for a perfect opportunity to, <laughs> to use to it. So. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> there you are. been sitting right. there for, for yeah. months. <laughs> fell right into that one. So. You sure did. It, yeah. It's on YouTube anyway. if anybody wants to hear the rest of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Goodbye Cassini it's called, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Mm. There you are. Um, well, we, we don't usually have a musical show, but it's been really uh, uh, really delightful today. So uh, yeah. thanks to everybody who contributed. Thank you, Paul. Lovely to hear from you. Uh, I was going to use... You know, because we had two Pauls on the show today, I was going to say it's an appalling show, but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> no no mm. more appalling than any of the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, thanks for all your questions. Thanks for uh, contributing to Space Nuts for another week. And uh, we will, uh, we've, got, we've got so many questions, Fred, we're going to have to uh, probably do this again in the not-too-distant future. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll, we'll catch up with everybody uh, real soon. Uh, thanks again. Uh, thanks for listening. Thank you, Fred, as always. It's been great fun. Yep, good to be here, and thank you for your um, your wit and humour in the meantime. <laughs> uh, yeah, dark humour as it is sometimes. Yeah. All right, we'll catch you next week, Fred. See you later. Sounds great. See you. That's Fred Watson, astronomer at large, uh, part of the team here at Space Nuts. Thank you for uh, joining us, and we look forward to your company next week. Until then, bye bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.